Don't look now. So welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hegman, coming at you yet again on our weekly Tuesday to uh, discuss a, a topic of fun and interest. So so take it away, Jenny. What, what's our discussion relating to this week? Well, it's something that I've wanted to do for quite a while. Um, I just kind of needed to kick myself to get it together to talk about. Um, and I'm mainly going to be doing kind of a background information, um, but there's definitely more space for later to have more talks about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so today we're going to talk about a silent crisis that has been taking place in Canada and the United States. Um, indigenous women and girls have been experiencing a disproportionate amount of violence and um, have been going missing and murdered for since the 60s yeah. and 70s. Yeah, I know no, that this is, is a big push right now, right? Yeah, yeah. No, this is a good, a good thing to be talking about. So, yeah. yeah so, in about the ahead. last ten years, there's been a really big, like, even federal policy to start talking about what happened to these women. Yeah, it's something I, I, I did not know about until you know, various podcasts and things over the last few years. That, you know, I didn't realize this was going on, especially, you know, the main ones. I, the main one I know about is more the, uh, the Canadian. Um, highway stuff, but yeah, yep. but I know. So I'm going to talk about that. Yeah, so that's cool. nice. kind of the background. Yeah. Right. Yep. So I'll, I'll let you, let you lead off here. So yeah, cool. Yeah. So the one thing I um, have always enjoyed learning more and more about working with tribes um, in anthropology, that was always something that you want to do, but like mm-hmm. growing up also just so close to the reservation, um, that's not something that you're really invited to when you are not part of the tribe. Um, so a lot of the information gets stuck on reservations. They're very leery about sharing information outside, um, which was part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So in 2016, Canada established the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. They launched that because between 1980 and 2016, um, Indigenous women and girls represented 16% of all female homicides. However, they only make up 4% of Canada's actual population. Yeah. So it's huge, like disproportionate yeah. amount. Um, so this ends up accounting for indigenous women and girls being seven times more likely to be murdered or have an act of violence committed against them in Canada. In the U S indigenous girls and women are more than twice as likely to experience violence than any other demographic and one in three Native women are sexually assaulted during their lifetime, with 67% of those incidents being perpetrated by non-Native people. Yeah. It's weird. Um, so, so how could this happen? How, how could this be possible, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of this had to do with jurisdictional policies. Um, it allowed for serial rapists, batterers, and I don't know what that word was supposed to be. I wrote fillers. Um, killers. I bet it was killers. Yeah. We're able. <laughs> oh, I don't know guys. Um, they were able to offend without being properly prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And in 2013, the federal violence against women act was reauthorized. And for the first time 
it allowed tribes the ability to investigate and prosecute felony domestic violence for both Native and non-Native Americans on the reservation. So like previously, the only people they could prosecute were Native Americans. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a, there's a loophole for you. Yeah. It's a pretty disgusting loophole, actually. I'm glad that that got cinched up. Yeah. So one of the biggest um, contributors to data is um, something called the Highway of Tears, which is a 725-kilometer corridor of Highway 16 between Prince George and Prince Rupert, British Columbia, Canada. Um, that's about 450 miles. So this has been the location of a ton of murders and disappearances since uh, the 1970s, and that's just when they started really tracking it. Mm -hmm. uh, the phrase was coined in 1998 during a vigil for four murdered women and two missing women. And um, in this area, there's just a disproportionately high number of indigenous women um, that are victims. And there's a bunch of explanations for years long um, crimes that are happening there and the limited progress. A lot of it has to do with systemic racism, uh, poverty, drug abuse, domestic violence, uh, disconnection with culture and disruption of the family unit through foster care and um, part of the Indian residential schooling system. So especially in Canada, about three or four years ago, a lot of um, people who were in high school were committing suicide at an ungodly rate because they had a really high poverty level and they didn't think that they were ever gonna get out of the system. So they had like three or 400 suicides in a matter of weeks. Because mm -hmm. with teenagers, it's one of those things that it's very um, contagious. It's like yeah, you get a big cluster. Yeah, yeah. So this is the kind of situation that they're living in. Is just this: there's no money. There's rampant drug and alcoholism. There's a ton of domestic violence because there's rampant drug and alcoholism. Um, and there, a lot of them are living in homes that were subsidized by the government, which are not. Uh, they're glorified tents in a lot of cases. Hmm. So um, the poverty leads to extremely low rates of car ownership. So hitchhiking was one of the ways that people could travel to see their family, to go to work, to get medical treatment, to go to school. Um, and then another factor leading to the abductions and murders in this area is that it's really isolated and remote. Um, and then some other like ecological factors are that the, the soil in the area is like really soft so the the scavengers can carry away remains really easily so even if someone did leave a body sometimes they can't find it because scavengers have moved it and distributed the bones all over the place um and a lot of these because of all this you're in an isolated area it's really remote there's no one around um, the attacks then tend to be a little bit more violent because they have so much more privacy and they're able to carry out all their crimes and hide their evidence really easily because you can turn the soil and bury a body with no problem. So, yeah. yeah, isn't that crazy? Um, so the first investigation by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police um, that tried to look at the Highway of Tears as linked cases was opened in 1998. Uh, the list of cases as it existed back then included three additional male victims, um, Eric or Larry View, Eric Koss, and Phillips Frazier, um, but they're not considered linked to the other murders at this point in time. And 
there have been a number of people that have been convicted in cases related to the Highway of Tears as a result of these investigations. Three serial killers are among those charged. Their names are Brian Arp, Edward Isaacs, and Cody Legbikoff. And even though he was not implicated in any of the Highway of Tears cases, um, notorious serial killer Bobby Jack Fowler was implicated in a lot of replace, a lot of cases related to the database that was built to track these. Um, but he died in prison before any charges could be laid. Another man by the name of Gary Hanslin has been charged with two of the murders. Um, one of them was in that database. And neither of those two people have been charged in the deaths of any of the Highway of Tears of victims. But it's all part of this network of um, okay. the, the place, the depository of information. Um, but it is possible that Fowler was linked to the Highway of Tears cases because he worked for a company called Happy's Roofing in 1974. So he would have had to go up and down the road. Um, there is a police geographic profiler by the name of Ken Rosmo who has said that in his opinion, though, he doesn't really think that he's responsible for any of the crimes on Highway 16 um, between 1989 and 2006. That's a long period of time. And if he was already a serial killer, that's a lot of opportunity. So yeah. anything's possible. Then in 2009, police converge on a property in the Isle Pair in a rural part of Prince George to search for the remains of a young woman by the name of Nicole Hoare, who was a young tree planter who went missing on Highway 16 on June 21st, 2002. The uh, property was once owned by a person named Leland Schweitzer who is currently serving in um, prison for second degree murder of his brother, which basically means he murdered him without um, premeditation mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And the Royal Canadian Mounted Police also searched the property for other people that were missing, but they haven't found them. So basically they think they're never going to solve all these cases, but um, someday they hope to get more answers uh, so that they can charge more people. So in an official government report, um, George Gredis, who was a ministerial assistant, was accused of being irresponsible for triple deleting all emails relating to the Highway of Tears um, from the email account of Tim Duncan, who was a former executive assistant to the Transportation Minister Todd Stone. And what this basically ends up turning into is that in October 22nd of 2015, um, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Denham, who was the Information and Privacy Commissioner of the British Columbia, published a 65-page report outlining how the British Columbian government officials had triple-deleted emails relating to the Highway of Tears. In her report, she describes the act as of triple-deleting as transferring an email to the deleted folder in the computer system, deleting the email, and then overwriting the backup that allows the system to retrieve it. By deleting this, she says that the government has breached the Freedom of Information and Privacy of and Protection of Privacy Act. Um, and she became aware of this scandal in May of that year after she had received a letter from Tim Duncan, who was this former um, administrative assistant. So Duncan claims um, he was responding to a Freedom of Information application um, and he was ordered to search for the files pertaining to anything of the Highway of Tears and Missing Women. And once they were located, he was ordered to have them all deleted. And when he hesitated, then Gretis takes his computer away from him and triple deletes everything. Um, and according to Denim, Gretis obviously denies this, but then later during a different interview admits to it. Uh, he ends up resigning from his job and, um, 
he, which he had to because he lied under oath, basically. A year earlier in the summer of 2014, a, tra- a team from the Transportation Ministry had toured Highway 16 and conducted a bunch of meetings with Aboriginal leaders and communities. And they were trying to come up with these solutions for women to travel along Highway 16 safer. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, they were hitchhiking because that's all that they had. It's not like there was a bus system that ran up and down, right? Yeah. So in November of 2014, they made the Freedom of Information request seeking all the files pertaining to who had gone missing and why. Um, and that was supposed to be put together into a report. But despite a two-month tour and multiple meetings, they claimed that the Freedom of Information request didn't ever produce anything. And everybody was super confused by that. Um, and they had was the thing. So like yeah. all these things did exist until so, this guy had deleted them. So what is so, the political governmental reason for deleting this stuff i mean what what would this guy have been protecting i guess i don't well since they he deleted the files he never said what was in the files They're yeah gone yeah i'm just wondering wondering what advantage to him it was to delete the files that's, that's i would assume that they weren't investigating the cases very well um, yeah. and that they probably said a lot of things that were very derogatory or they wouldn't have deleted them okay is that they just didn't seem to care very much about these people is probably, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm going to assume. Yeah. That and that would have been made lot, obvious by all these files. So Yeah. It just seems kind of odd. So dude gets away with this. He just has to resign and um, ends up being fined $2,500. Nice. Great. Just really bothers me. <sighs> so that database that I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. In uh, 2005, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police um, have this funded project, which is called EPANA, um, and it's focusing on the unsolved murders and disappearances of young women, specifically along Highway 16. Um, So they were trying to determine if there's one serial killer, a bunch of killers, um, just if this is just random luck, whatever. So they had three cases in 2005, and then in 2006, it was nine. Um, and then in 2007, it was 18 cases. So it just was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So they started to look at more than just um, along Highway uh, 16. They started kind of panning out to see what, if it's here, what else is happening just outside of the, the target zone, right? So victims involved within the EPANA investigation follow the following criteria. They have to be female. They have to have a high-risk lifestyle, um, including being known to hitchhike. They and were last seen or their bodies were discovered within a mile of Highway 16, Highway 97, or Highway 5. And in 2009, they received $5 million in annual funding, but it's declined because, you know, nobody has money anymore. Um, and now they only receive 800000 dollars a year in 2013 um the deputy commissioner warned that further budget reductions would greatly affect the highway of tears investigations um he didn't specifically say the epana because they aren't necessarily highway of tears investigations but it's all part of all of it Mm -hmm. um and there was a freedom of information request in 2014 that showed that that task force had dropped from 70 officers to 12 Now, this project has been responsible for linking a homicide of 16-year-old Colleen McMillan, who was killed in 1974, with the American serial killer Bobby Jack Fowler. 
Um, and Epana thinks that he's a suspect for other people, um, including Gail Ways and Pamela Darlington, both of whom were killed in the 70s. And then in 2014, um, Epana and the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit brought murder charges against Gary Handen, Handlin for the death of 12-year-old Monica Jack in 1978. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Um, and hers was the first murder that was officially solved um, in Project Epana. Hmm. So it that took a really long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're still they're still investigating a bunch of unsolved mysteries, but they they really don't think that they're going to solve all that many of them. Yeah, I mean, it would be. So everybody wants to know. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I just I'm shocked that they were able to solve this stuff from the 70s. I mean, you think there'd be so little, so little evidence and things around now that you know. I'm, yeah, it's it's been. I'm there's a whole list of all the women in this project and the ones that they solved. It's unbelievable. Like, oh yeah, they found so and so's bloody clothing or. Um, they had their DNA on them from 1970. Like you found that in 2000. Wow. That's a long time to hold on to this stuff. That's crazy. So uh, we want to know why this, why are we not getting anywhere? Why has nothing been solved? Right? So some people argue that the lack of results arising from the big investigations is due to systemic racism. Um, There was also an issue in the case of Vancouver's missing women and the Robert Picton murders, um, because that was really the reason why they weren't solving those murders was due to racism. Nobody cared about these indigenous women at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's been documentaries that have been filmed as a result to try to um, bring light to these issues. And activists are saying that the media coverage as well is limited. Um, You know, they, it's a lesser value to report on these cases. Nobody, nobody wants to hear about them. And despite the fact that the disappearances date as far back as 1969, it wasn't until 2005 that ePanel was even launched and they started to investigate. So it was in 2002 when Nicole Hoare, who's a Caucasian woman, dis- <coughs> excuse me, disappeared in the same area mm-hmm. that people first start talking about these cases. Um, because she got a ton of media coverage. And so people started to say, um, and one of the victim's aunts says that she believes if it wasn't for this woman, this woman, um, Nicole Hoare, that they would never have investigated because they just weren't putting any effort into it because who cared about a bunch of missing Aboriginal women? (sighs) Isn't that so sad? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, I don't know, the thing that, you know, anytime I've, I don't know, looked into things with serial killers and other stuff that there, it's just consistently marginalized populations that are always preyed upon because they know that they're not going to get the full attention of police forces. You know, they know that, you know, witnesses won't be believed, people won't pay as much attention, all this kind of stuff. And that, you know, every time there's some group like that, you know, you end up having these killers that prey on it. I mean, you had the, you know, various homosexual populations, you know, runaway teens, minorities, you know, indigenous people, er- everything. It seems like anytime yep. there's, there's some group that is generally not getting their, their proper 
attention from, you know, police and government that people notice that and they, they take advantage and it's, it's pretty, pretty horrifying. Well, and not only are they doing that, I mean, we have years of the way that people talk about people in these communities. Yeah. The way people talk about homeless people, the way they talk about sex workers, the way they talk about indigenous people, it's ingrained to want to promote violence. Like no one will care that this person's missing. I'm doing the world a favor. That's something that serial killers, that's part of their like rhetoric. Mm-hmm. That's how they justify it in their crazy heads. So, I mean, that's something that it's just ingrained in the culture and it's something I'm hoping is shifting and people are placing more value on lives than that. But I, yeah, I mean, you hope that's, Steadily people get humanized over time, that that seems to be generally the trend. You know, it seems to go up and down, but, uh, yeah, but, you know, that seems to always be the issue is as long as, as long as somebody is an other or just not quite as human as you, then, you know, all this stuff goes on. So it's very, it's very sad. And it's sad that it takes so many people. And that's not the thing. That's not the catalyst. It's the white lady that yeah. goes missing. That's the catalyst. Yeah. And and truly, women just in general going missing, it's pretty surprising that that was a catalyst because if she had any of those common factors, I can't imagine that she would have stuck out any more than any of these other women. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I know. I know. Um, so like I said, a lot of the women from this area do not have transportation. So they get, they get snatched up when they're hitchhiking, Mm -hmm. um, and often have other high risk lifestyles to just survive. Um, and so they will hitchhike along highway 16. And like I said, a lot of them were last seen uh, or reported to be hitchhiking prior to that. Um, in March of 20, 2006, um, Various Aboriginals groups tried to host a Highway of Tears symposium. Um, and in, t- in attendance, there were victims' families and over 500 leaders from across British Columbia. And the recommendation from this was that they were trying to, they issued 33 recommendations to improve public transit, to deter hiking, and prevent violence towards Aboriginal women. Um, some of the recommendations included getting a shuttle bus to operate improvement in educational health and social service for the Aboriginal people, as well as counseling and mental health groups organized by Aboriginal workers. Um, This is just part of a long-term recommendation as well um, from the First Nations to confront their intergenerational poverty issues that they have. And this was endorsed um, by the, the commissioner at the time, Wally Opal, in his 2012 Missing um, Women Commission of Inquiry recommendations. Mm -hmm. And um, he had a public inquiry report into the Robert Picton case that demanded urgent transportation improvements along Highway 16. Um, And they were trying to do anything they could to help people. So these symposiums, they've held a lot of them. They've had a lot of recommendations, but it, nothing's moving very quickly along this. Um, However, in 2016, they finally, so three years after that symposium, they finally get a bus service that's available along highway 16. Um, and then it didn't start operating until it 2017. <laughs> so it took a really long time. And, yeah. and 
it's only on alternating days and only goes about 250 miles of the 70 some or 400 and some miles. So they're trying. Um, it's hard. Public transportation is expensive. Yeah. So you can I'm only sure do it. There's a low do. population density, so there's not much to pay for it and other stuff. But Right. Man. Right. So let's go down the rabbit hole by way of talking about some of the specific missing and murdered people. Um, and I, this honest, it goes back so far and there's so many names. So I just picked a handful to go over that I, this is just a sample. It's nothing. I mean, there's a lot of people involved in this. Um, the first one is Teresa Umphrey. She was last seen intoxicated outside of a convenience store in Prince George on February 14th, 1993. Some men reported giving her a ride, but when she couldn't remember where she lived, they drove her back to the convenience store. And her nude, partially frozen body was found um, about 50 kilometers southwest of Prince George on the 14th at 2.30 p.m. in 1993. So it was the next day. And the forensic pathologist who performed the autopsy of her death says that it was caused by manual strangulation and then strangulation with a ligature similar to the shoelace that was found at the scene. Um, later in October of 1993, so later that year, serial killer Brian Arp was arrested and convicted in her murder and the murder of Marnie Blanchard. He applied for an appeal in 1998, but it was denied. Um, then we have Stephanie Donnelly. She was stabbed three times in the heart and had her throat slashed by her father, Blair Donnelly, on the evening of November 23rd, 2006, between 9.30 and 10. His intended target was actually his wife, whom he believed a divine force was telling him to kill. The incident happened in their home. So Blair Donnelly, who was 47 at the time of the incident, is a Kitimate electrician who once trained as a pastor and helped establish a church in Ontario. He was found not guilty by reason of mental disorder in 2008. In 2009, he had an unsupervised community visit up to 28 days. While out on one of these visits, he stabbed somebody. Um, but this time they decided to hold him criminally responsible for his actions. Now he's back in the hospital. And as of April 2011, um, he was doing community visits again. <laughs> that sounds safe, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, then is Lauren Dawn Leslie. She was an acquaintance of serial killer Cody Legoboff, who she had met online. Um, they found her in November of 2010 on a remote logging road off of Highway 27 near Fort James. Legoboff was pulled over by police on November 27, 2010, and he was in possession of her belongings and was covered in her blood still. Uh, that he was would a, be a bit of a red flag. Right? Um, he was convicted of first-degree murder in September of 2014. Um, and he was convicted in the further deaths of Lauren Don Leslie, Jill Stacy Stuchenko, Cynthia Francis Mace, and Natasha Lynn Montgomery. Um, in September, he tried to appeal of 2016, but they just confirmed that he was super guilty. He was 20 oh, when geez. they arrested him. So that's, yeah. April Rose Johnson was shot on the afternoon of Thursday, December 20th, 2012, by her new fiance, Kane Penner. They had planned, um, they had paid an unplanned visit to the home of his cousin, Richard Bourne, to celebrate their engagement, as well as Bourne's birthday, and just in general, the holidays, because it was Christmas time. 
Uh, Born's girlfriend also lives in the home, which was a single-wide mobile home in Vanderhoof. And he claimed that, um, Penner claimed that the 22 caliber rifle, which shot Johnson, kind of just slipped, hit the counter, and went off. And a ballistics expert testified during the trial that the rifle was not prone to discharging when you drop it. Um, and he arrived at the hospital, which was only a 10-minute drive away, just before 10 p.m. Um, she was shot in the upper left abdomen, and her health was declining extremely rapidly when she was transferred. And she died shortly before 2 a.m. on December 21st. Within two months of the shooting, her fiancé was seeing somebody else. So, yeah, he was charged in 2015 with manslaughter charges with a firearm and the careless use of a firearm. Um, the Crown also approved charges of careless storage of the firearm, careless use of it, and unauthorized possession of a firearm against um, Bourne, the cousin. Mm -hmm. And they were arrested shortly after the charges were approved. Just insane. Okay, the last one, because these are kind of a bummer, and it's kind yeah. of a bummer way to end an episode. <laughs> but I like to see that there's hey. some resolution to some of these. Yeah, yeah. Um, this girl who has a great name is Immaculate Mackie Mary Maisel. Oh, wow. She was age 26, and she went missing from a town called Tatchy. She was the mother to a five-year-old son, and Mackie had recently broken up with the father of her child, whom, who was considered her common-law husband. Her family described her as being a homebody, so she kind of stuck out to me because she did not have drug problems. She wasn't kind of a partier. She seemed pretty careful. Um, and having said that, the night she went missing, she was at a house party, right, mm -hmm. um, which was June of 2013. She was about a 20-minute walk away from her house, and she left at midnight. She was last seen after the house party, headed to a cabin in the Leo Creek area north of Tatchy. And according to police reports and interviews with men in the area, um, she was with her cousin and another man named Victor in a white truck headed towards a cabin near the Coochie Reserve. Um, they had been drinking and we're going to pick up 10. I don't know what that means. I guess maybe like 10 cans. I uh, don't know why. Yeah, maybe. Uh. Um, when the truck got stuck after an accident, she separated from them, smart, and headed for the cabin alone. Um, this is what the cousin and the friend told the police. Usually she called her sisters every day at 10 a.m. Her sister became alarmed after a few days of not receiving a call. And she was reported missing on Monday, June 17th, which was four days later. The um, Royal Canadian Mounted Police came to Fort St. James to file a missing persons report on June 18th, 2013. Um, Mackie hadn't taken any clothing or makeup or anything. She always changed every single day. Her family thought that her disappearance was super out of character. Uh, the police had conducted polygraphs of both Keith and Victor, and they said that they were super cooperative. Um, and a, a police psychologist also conducted interviews of both men and reported that they didn't think there was anything suspicious. There were numerous reports of Victor and Tachi at 10 a.m. on the 14th, um, which was the day of her appearance, walking down the road, clothes wet up to his chest. Hmm. And Mackie went missing hours away drive from Fort St. James, which is a place called the 16 kilometer. And they don't know how Victor got back to Tachi without the vehicle. So, like, it just is a super weird, no one really knows what happened there situation. Sure. So, yeah, those are some specific cases. There's loads of cases. I encourage people to go listen to some podcasts, um, read some information about them. It, 
there's just a lot. Like I said, it's, it's really ripe for a ton of episodes because there's just a lot that's going on up there. Yeah. Well, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for calling attention to it. I, you know, it, it's, it's a bummer, but it's good to know about and it's good to be aware. And, um, you know, there are plenty of problems in the U S as well, as you mentioned. So, I mean, there's, it's kind of right going on everywhere and, you know, it's basically lack of attention that makes these things continue. So, well, and it's, it's like a two way distrust, right? So like people don't trust outside of the reservation to help them and we don't trust on the reservation to help either. Mm-hmm. There's, it is a two way distrust and it's, it's quite sad because not a lot's happening as a result. Yeah. And I mean, it always seems anytime there's kind of the, the whole jurisdictional issue fight over things, it, it yeah. seems to be kind of the classic issue that foils all kinds of investigations and other stuff. So. Right. And <laughs> the, the rampant poverty and all the cultural yeah. like impoverishment things that go along with that yeah. is just, it yeah. makes for a powder keg that it's sad. It's just sad. Yeah. I mean, if you've got, if you got the jurisdictional stuff and it takes effort to get anything done and no one is interested enough to put in the effort, then nothing, you know, nothing gets done. So. Exactly. exactly. <sighs> All right. Well, thank you for calling attention to it and we'll, we'll get it out to everybody. Uh, yeah. Thank you all for listening this week and uh, tune in again in a week. We'll be back again with another podcast. So we will catch you all later again. If you have any ideas or just want to bring anything up, we've got our email address. Uh, don't look now 19 at gmail.com and uh, we will catch you all later. Bye. Bye.